You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Brian Thomas Schmidt. Hello, dear friends. I'm Dave Robertson. And I'm Brian Humphrey. And you're listening to a very special edition of the Roundtable podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a segment in which Dave and I have the great honor to share the microphone with some really awesome freaking people. And uh, today is kind of fun. Awesome freaking people. Yes. That kind of implies, well, yeah, and, and that actually might be appropriate. It, it is for a verb. It is a verb, and, and you yeah. conjugated it well. Well done, sir. Thank you. Thank um, you. Yes, Thank we you do have time. awesome freaking people, and, and today we actually have some, let me, let me introduce you to the awesome freakness that is our guest host, Brian. Please do. Yes. Um, you, you understand this. Our, our guest host has always had the uncanny ability to see the amazing in the mundane, now, if, if you show him a rock, he'll show you the statue that's inside of it. And apparently, as a child, he never played with the same toy in the same way twice and got very annoyed when they didn't do the things that he imagined they could do. Um, <laughs> and we all have experienced that, that oh, letdown yes. after Christmas morning. Why doesn't it fly? Uh, now, as he grew towards manhood, that vision of awesomeness in all things continued to drive him. Uh, television just wasn't making the grade for him, so our guest host began making up storylines for his favorite TV shows like Hill Street Blues, Miami Vice, and Battlestar Galactica. Now, point of clarification, dear friends, this would be the BSG with Lorne Green playing Adama. Okay, uh, uh, and our guest host, like myself, is one of those guys who actually watched that on TV. Um, uh, and when the existing storylines failed to contain his vibrant imagination, he created his own TV show and wrote 13 episodes of it in high school. And interestingly, the pilot script for that series titled District One won our guest host his first writing award, which is irony of the finest order. Uh, he also fell victim to the classic gateway drugs for all writers, those being the sweeping works of Tolkien and viewing Star Wars in its original movie theater release. Uh, he was hooked. He was doomed from that point on. Uh, it, was, it was all sliding down the writer's hill, as it were. Storytelling was in his blood, and he attended film school at both Carnegie Mellon University and California State University at Fullerton, where he scored a communications degree focusing on radio, TV, and film media. And it wasn't I have to stop you right there. Just I know that you're on a roll, but that's where I went to school. Is it California State University at Fullerton? Yep. Wow. So, yeah. I didn't plan that, but that's pretty cool. I know. Yeah. So, and you got your directing Con degree there, right? I did. Yeah. Yeah. All Theater right. directing bachelor's. Yeah. There you go. God, you guys may be it's a great school. Alma maters. <laughs> now, uh, uh, it wasn't long after our guest host scored that degree uh, that he was working for a production company that made documentaries for shows like The History Channel, A&E, NBC, and more, including the award-winning Discovery Channel documentary, Titanic, The Legend Lives On. Uh, now, his first solo work to be released was not, however, a film or a novel. Uh, the world got its first taste of our guest host's creative mojo on a CD of original music titled Stand in 1998, 
Uh, and he continued to write songs, stories, and articles, releasing Glorious in 2003 and Love Like No Other in May 2009. His first published science fiction story, Mars Base Alpha, was published at sffstories.com in January 2010. His debut novel, The Worker Prince, received honorable mention on the Barnes & Noble Book Club's year's best science fiction releases for 2011. Its sequel, The Returning, followed in 2012, and The Exodus will appear in 2013, completing this epic space opera saga. Now, ever in touch with his inner child, our guest host has also written children's books. 102 more hilarious dinosaur jokes for kids and the forthcoming Abraham Lincoln Dinosaur Hunter, Land of Legends, enters into the world thanks to Delabare Publishing. Now, he's also an editor, guiding the development for Space Battles, Full Throttle Space Tales Number 6, and is working on Beyond the Sun for Fairwood Press, headlined by Robert Silverberg, Christine Catherine Roche, Mike Resnick, and Nancy Kress. He's also edited a Raygun Revival Best of collection for Everyday Publishing, and World Encounters and Space and Shadows Spec Noir with co-editor John Helfers, all forthcoming. And, as if that weren't enough, he hosts the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Chat on Twitter every Wednesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and he's also an affiliate member of SIFWA. Holy crap! Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome on the Skype line and to the big chair here at the Roundtable Podcast, our guest host for this 20 Minutes with, Mr. Brian Thomas Schmidt. Brian, thank you so much for making the time to join us. You you must have a, a, an epic schedule of of events, so we really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure to be here. I got to tell you, I think I'm going to take you with me to all the cons because if you could introduce me, I sound better than I. Than I I'm like I want to meet that guy. <laughs> I'm actually I'm actually jockeying I'm for. T- I'm telling you, Dave, there's a market in this. I know, right? That's not the. That's probably the sixth or seventh time that <laughs> people, you know, they want to take you on job interviews. And... That's right. I'm a professional herald. That's what I'll be. Yeah. You know, I can get the whole waistcoat and everything. Seriously, it'd be like, I don't have to even be awesome after you introduce me. It's like, I'll just, <laughs> I'll just, I'll just take some questions now. Okay, but, well, let's do that by yeah. all means. Let's let's <laughs> let's start our 20 minutes with Brian Thomas Schmidt. I'm going <laughs> to start the timer here and uh, let's get into this. Um, Brian, you've explored uh, a wide range of media in your life, television, music, so forth. And, and you've apparently always written in some form or another, but it, it seems in, in that bio that around 2008 or so, something changed for you. Uh, it seems like you began to commit the full attention of your, of your not inconsiderable creative mojo uh, on writing. And I was wondering if you could explain what, what happened that, that caught your attention and transformed you into a writer at that point. Well, you know, I uh, I worked in the I went to film school as, as as we talked about earlier in the same school, obviously that Brian Brian went to, and um, the other Brian. You guys get to get confused That's today. Right. About <laughs> Brian and Brian, okay. But anyway, uh, and and the and the thing is that you know I was in the business for a period of time, had a script in development, did different things, but there was a lot of rejection. The thing I kept getting from people was, uh, you know, that I was too cliche or I did too obvious stuff. You need to live a little more. So I, I left that business to go and travel and live life. I did music for a while. I did a master's degree. I did missionary work in Africa and various places and volunteer work and did all this stuff. Well, 
I always wanted to write, and I always kept writing, but there was a point in time where, um, around 2003, I tried the film industry again. There was a film that shot in St. Louis. I got on the crew. I did it. And I realized I'm too old for this crap. <laughs> uh, the lifestyle that I was having to do of 16-hour days and being up in the middle of the night and all that, I was just like, you know what? I don't like that. I don't want to do that anymore. I'd rather sit in a room on my own hours and write. And that's kind of what led me back to trying the novel thing. I'd had an idea for a while for uh, a couple of different books. and In fact, the one that became my first published novel, The Worker Prince, I had the idea when I was like 15 years old. Right. So I was like, okay, I have no idea how to write a novel, but I'm a writer. Um, the obvious thing, how hard could it be? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> None of us ever think that, right? Yeah, hell no. <laughs> So I said, I'm going to sit down and try to write this. And, you know, about three, four months later, I had a novel, sent it out, realized it was crap, and uh, I can't do this. And this basically took a year off to, to learn craft and came back to it. But that that's kind of how I turned my attention to it, because I enjoyed it. I enjoyed storytelling so much again. I, I still thought there were stories I needed to, t set, to tell, things I needed to say things I need to put out in the world. And, um, that was one outlet. I thought I might try doing it and see what happened. Well, let me, let me ask you, Brian, uh, you, you mentioned that, uh, uh, you'd been getting feedback on your original work. It was too cliche, yada, yada, go out and live a little bit. I, I would imagine, um, I've certainly run into this and I would imagine a lot of writers new to the craft do as well, that there, there's a fear. There's, there's a, a concern that what we're writing is cliche or we're completely oblivious to it and somebody else has mm -hmm. to tell us. But what, what, God, how do we even express this? What did you, how do you get past that? What is it that you, how do you identify when you're being cliche? You know, it's funny because I think you'll go through different phases of it. Like, for example, now I get a little... Uh, less concerned about it because I avoid cliches in the first draft. But when I first started writing novels, you had to avoid putting in those pop culture cliches and the, the different phrases that, you know, that have been overused a hundred times and tears fell like rain from his eyes or some of that, you know, <laughs> it's something right. that well, in, in dialogue, when talking to each other, we might say something like that and not even think twice about it. But when you commit it to the page on a book, it's a little different because it, 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 it it's almost like, um, it's almost like foreshadowing too much. It takes people out of the story in a way that makes it too obvious that it's not, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're too common. You have to, you have to have your own unique voice. And if you do cliches, it's not unique and it takes people out of the story. See, that so makes I guess sense. For, that makes sense. Yes, you know, that's the best explanation I can, I can come up with right now for it. Sure. Um, and, and I think that, that for me, a lot of it was just not going, reaching deep enough into the story. One of the advantages that I have, ironically, I'm an, I'm, um, I have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And one of the things that that does for you is, of course, you're all over the place, but it also means that I'm able to look at things really fast in multiple different directions. I can consider a problem from a lot of different angles and anticipate a lot of different things, which to some people makes me a pain in the butt because I'm always asking, <laughs> what if this, what if this, what if this, what if this? The problem was I didn't employ that very well in my writing as a younger person. And now I employ it a lot. I'm like, okay, if I did this, wait, wait a minute, somebody else did that. What if I did that? You know, so I could go through that whole thing 
with dialogue with myself of, of how can I do something that's going to be unexpected? And the cool part is about it is you get to a point where you can surprise yourself. Because, for example, when I wrote The Returning, which is the second book in the Davi Ree series, I, uh, I um, was, was, was going through all this personal crap and all this crap I won't go into go, going on in my life. And so I wrote it over a period of like nine months, and there were times where it sat for a whole month and I didn't touch it. So I, I put it aside after I finished the thing, you know, just relieved that I even finished the darn thing, and uh, and then went through it, and I was like, oh my god, I did that, you know, the plot twist and stuff. It was like, holy crap, I, I'm brilliant, I, right? I'm a genius. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think we've all done that when we go back and look at some of our older work that we weren't all that thrilled with, and go, holy crap, sure, that's not bad. Yeah, yeah the well, subconscious I, bleeds through a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's better than the times when we go through it. We go, like, oh, God, this really is crap. <laughs> <laughs> True that. True that. Uh, Brian, let me ask you, because it kind of ties in when you were talking about the, the attention deficit disorder and those kinds of things. Um, Dave and I have always, we, we talk a lot about the intricacies of world building. And I was listening to an interview that you were doing with another podcast, and I wish I'd written down who it was because I have no idea at this point. But um, <clears throat> one of the things that, that you were going into was the politics and the religion and all of the different things that play into the world within your, your writing. And it's it's really intricate, you know, how you throw that in and your, your subplot and multiple conflict threads. And do you find that you ever get swept up in one that you, you really enjoy kind of building and um, where do you put on the brakes and then force yourself to go back and, and revisit the other elements of storytelling so that you can actually get the book done? When I know the answer to that, I'll give you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> no see, no help here. <laughs> I'm, I'm, struggling to, I'm struggling to write book three right now, and I'm like, why the hell did I do this to myself? You know, because I made it so complicated Book book one was fairly straightforward. It it, it it had some intertwining plots and complications, but book two, I was doing what a lot of writers do. I'm like, how do I write a book two that feels like a complete book? Because the story's never going to end. I right. mean, book one had a sense of an ending that if nothing else ever happened, it could have been the end. There was more that went on that could have been explored, but people could have still felt like, you know, they, they felt a conclusion. But book two, there was no way that was going to happen. And so I had to come up with extreme measures to make it feel like I had to deal with a lot. Of, first of all, I was going through a lot of emotion in my life. Um, I was dealing with a marriage falling apart. I had dealt with mental illness, health issues for my ex-wife. Um, and I was going through being unemployed and a lot of difficulties. So I poured all that into the page. And then that led to, of course, greater twists and turns, some characters dying, some emotional highs and lows for the characters that were much deeper and more powerful than what I had in book one, which is not a bad thing, but it also, I think, helped shape that book into something where there are cliffhangers that the, that, that even though the book really doesn't end the saga, you're like, thank God he stopped for now. I can take a break. And, <laughs> and that was kind of what the, it, that's how that story ended up being kind of, I, I describe it more as like a, a born movie kind of thing where it, it takes off and it never lets go as opposed to book one, which had a, a lot of a, a more coming of age, slower, unfolding of the story some of the criticisms that i've gotten to actually answer your question see now i've, I've blabbed yeah. on now i'll actually answer. <laughs> uh all of that to say that um some of the criticisms i've gotten is that i didn't deal enough for example with some of the the motivations of the, the the antagonist i didn't deal enough with the religion of the other side 
all of that's happening in book three. Part of that was deliberate. Part of that was me saying, oh, I've already bugged it down enough with this. I can reveal all that later and it'll make sense. People just have to read all three books. And part of it was also getting too caught up in one aspect of it and neglecting others. So I guess I've learned as I went is the answer to your question. And in book yeah. three, I'm trying to deal with some of those things and make sure they get dealt with. How are you dealing with them? Well, in book three, I'm actually dealing with um, one of the characters rediscovers the, tr the religion of the of the Boralian people, for example, and he, he's uh, finding it has more influence on his life. And so we're getting to see a little bit more how that works and how they approach it and kind of how the attitudes towards it are a little more casual in that society. Um, so basically, basically you're having a character brush up against those areas of information you want to impart to the reader and, and through have it affect their life in, in some meaningful way so that the reader has buy-in as well. Right. I mean, the reality of it is, if you're going to present stuff like that, you can't just do a data dump. You've got to make it inherent to the story. Okay. And part of the reason that it didn't happen before is that, you know, the religion was an aspect of the lives of the slave characters, the Vertolians. So, for them, it was part of their lifestyle, so they thought about it a lot. For the Boralians, none of the characters that I was dealing with were particularly dedicated to their religion. It was more like a, this is just something we do and part of our identity, and we recognize it every once in a while, but we don't practice it every day. So it was hard for me to force that into the story. So this time I realized that one of those characters could kind of have a bit of a religious revival or a, a, a reawakening, and that I could then work it into the book in a way that allowed me to reveal some of that data that was missing. And that actually mm -hmm. makes it part of the, it's, it's more actually uh, just part of the story rather than something you just superimpose upon it to try to, to meet world building needs. Excellent. We'll be back with more of our conversation with Brian Thomas Schmidt after this brief promotional break. I crouched low in the dim light, my gaze sweeping across the ruined grandeur of the lost temple of Abu Harabi. Before me on a stone altar, still black with blood spilled from a thousand human sacrifices, lay the Tablet of Infinite Delights. I lifted it carefully and placed it in my satchel, and it was then I heard the slithering scrape of a hundred serpents. I turned, drawing my pistol, and gaped at the horror that had risen before me. A black, tentacled beast from my darkest nightmare. It rose higher and higher, and I feared for my very soul. But the thing's bulk crashed into the ceiling, collapsing it and allowing me to scrabble away with my life, my sanity... And my prize. Later I examined it, translating the ancient script. For adventure of a bygone era, the tablet read, tune in to Protecting Project Pulp, a weekly podcast of classic pulp tales guaranteed to get your pulse pounding. You can tune in to the thrills of Protecting Project Pulp starting Tuesday, July 17th. Visit their website at www.protectingprojectpulp.com for more information. Protecting Project Pulp, where adventure truly begins. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Brian Thomas Schmidt. Is, is there one aspect that you find that you keep coming back to, like maybe you know when you're when you're tired and you don't you can't get right back into the story, and you're like, I'm going to play some more with this, and you have to kind of pull yourself away from that to to focus on other things. Is there one specific thing that you enjoy the most in in putting your stories together? 
Well, I really like working in the comedy banter, and I like working in action. What a shock. (laughs) I'm stunned. I'm utterly stunned. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I know. I seem like such a completely sober, funny, sober person, right? You know, that I mean, uh, how does this guy write humor? He seems so boring, right? Yeah. No, I mean, I really like, I really do like banter. You can tell because I like to engage in it. So I I get, sometimes I get caught up a little bit more in dialogue and don't do enough with the inner life of the characters. And that's something Mm. I really have to focus on, which is why I'm a little bit like, Mike Resnick, who's been a bit of a mentor to me, uh, if anybody who's listening is not a science fiction or fantasy fan, Mike Resnick is, is the most award-winning guy living today in science fiction, and he's a very successful writer. He was just the guest of honor at the WorldCon in Chicago this last summer. Right. And he's, he's become a friend of mine and a mentor. He's also one of my favorite writers, so that's a really neat thing. And and uh, Mike, Mike told me that he's one of the only writers he knows whose first draft is thinner than his, his later drafts. And that's kind of true for me. I said, you're not alone anymore because that's how I am. Because I, I, I want to get the plot and the bare bones of the arcs and the story on paper. And then I go back and figure out how can I make this more emotional? How can I do more with descriptions? I mean, I, you know, how do I do? Okay, what's, what is he wearing right now? What, 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 what does this building actually look like? All those, I mean, the only thing that go in the first draft are if he needs to be sitting, I, I put a chair in there. That's about it. You know? So really, you're writing right, a bare bones right. first draft with, with no, nothing but almost it's almost like a story outline it's not well it it gets it gets it gets more thick as you go i think one of the things that you discover as a writer um is you would you you at first you have to do like with worker prints i did multiple drafts just because i I would discover an area craft that i didn't deal with so i'd go back and do a specific draft focused on that but in now i incorporate so much of that in my first draft because i think about it all as one unit whereas before it's just stuff i never really had, had internalized you internalize stuff as you learn it, and it becomes a little bit different process and evolves over time. So your drafts get a little cleaner and a little fuller as you go. This is the thickest first draft I've ever done, This the Exodus. Uh, it's already, I think, uh, longer than... Uh, it's. I think it's already more pages than either of the other two final manuscripts were. Wow. Um, so I, I may end up having to reverse it and cut some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be a new uh, experience for you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think that... Um, it, uh, it it's part of internalizing things as you go, so that that's kind of evolving. But yeah, initially that's what I focus on, and then if things come to me, I do. And more and more, I find that as I've learned them, they do come to me, and so I put more in the first draft. But that was kind of that's kind of the initial focus when I go into it is just getting that stuff down. Okay, sure, cool, Brian. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you we've we've asked many authors on the show to to express what it is about speculative fiction uh, that, that makes it such an ideal genre for the stories they want to tell. Now, we've, we've also, uh, I've discovered, had many writers and authors on the show who are very comfortable in their faith and have actually made it a part of their presence in the creative community. And I wanted to ask you, as, as an author for whom faith plays such a large role in your life, what is it about speculative fiction, be it space opera or epic fantasy or whatever, that that makes it such an ideal genre for the stories you want to tell. Well, gee, if you ask my agnostic and atheist friends, they'd tell me it's they'd say it's because faith is ridiculously fiction. Well, yeah, but, uh, yeah. But we're not asking them; we're asking you. <laughs> no, 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 I couldn't resist the joke. <laughs> banter Dave. banter right sorry sorry i i made a note in the margin more banter got it i have to, I have to give them kudos no i you know i think it's a strong it's a, it, it's such a part of who i am i don't i don't consider myself a religious person uh, um 
it's part of my lifestyle. It's pretty much how I view the world. It's my worldview. And so all of that stuff shapes. When I think about anything, I'm asking the questions that are related to my faith about anything I'm thinking about. So it's, it's, it's almost more challenging me for, for me to go in and try to write a person who doesn't have that than a person who does, because that's pretty much who I am. Um, and I, so I think it's a natural part of, of the way I think about stories and think about life, so it works its way in. It's also something that I, I think is a very big driving motive for human beings in general. I've traveled a lot. I've gone to a lot of places in the world, and I've studied a lot of cultures. And there's almost no there's I haven't read into a culture yet that doesn't have some form of organized faith sure. involved in their culture. Now there are always the people that say, "Oh, that's a bunch of BS." On the other side of it, too, but um, it's it's such a, it's such an inherent part of living in the world that we live in. Where, where we've discovered that there is a universe and a galaxy and so much and so forth that's so much bigger than what we understand. That we that there's this uh, structure of atoms that makes everything up in cells and little things that is so big, much bigger than anything that we can really grasp in our finite beings that I think it lends itself to asking those bigger questions and wondering about things. And I think... Um, it's therefore, I mean, it's funny how many, how many authors I know that are atheists or agnostic, like I'll give you two examples, Jay Lake and Paul Kemp, both friends of mine, that explore faith in their writing a lot. Because they said it's just an area that is um, too ri- rich and ripe for storytelling to ignore. Um, I, actually, I always tell people, if you, if you write a world where there's no faith, you, but you, you, you almost need to explain that. Because sure. it, it's almost a, such an obvious absence that um, it, makes, it makes it questionable uh, realism, you know, in a way. Sure, sure. It's less authentic a culture, but but yeah. but you have so many genres. You know, literary fiction, you get thrillers. I mean, there's there's so many formats and venues uh, uh, that could articulate a tale. Why why spec fic? Why space opera for for your particular stories? Well, I'm particularly given to wonder. So for me, speculative fiction feeds my my sense of wonder and what if uh in a lot of ways about not just the basic questions of what if so-and-so killed his wife and and tried to get away with it but you know what if what if uh, people could fly at the speed of light and what if there were laser guns and all these kind of things i mean i i guess uh in some ways i probe into those kind of aspects also i think there's a certain element of mythology that i find fascinating which when I, I mean, I do write stuff on an occasion that's set in a contemporary setting, and I, I, I ask less of the mythological questions in, uh, when I'm writing that on purpose. So I think some of the mythological questions and, and, and those kind of things as well are part of why the speculative um, fascinates me. But, you know, I've always been, always just been drawn to uh, the idea of exploration and, 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 and looking at the other and beyond. And sometimes it's, it's more fun and easier to think about that and 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 um, admittedly lazy to make up your own, <laughs> to make up your own alien rather than try to actually tell a real story about uh, an actual culture. For example, right now I'm writing a story about um, the Brazilians uh, out in space, Brazilian colonists, and I just had a Brazilian friend uh, come on board as co-writer to make me make sure I get it right. Um, I wouldn't have to do that with stuff I'm making up. Um, I got lucky. He said so far I've actually pretty much nailed it. There were only a few little nuances I needed to fix, but that's because I've I've been to Brazil so many times. I was married to a Brazilian, and I've I've spent a bunch of time studying the culture. Um, I, I I'll be honest with you. I'm, I hate research. Uh, it's it's something I did in for my master's degree, and it's not something I particularly enjoy uh, in and of itself, just for the purposes of research. I love reading history. I love reading a lot of different things, but having to actually do the work. 
So part of it is my laziness of saying, oh, I'll just make it up. That way I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, excellent. Excellent. That, that makes perfect sense. It, be, bear with me because I was trying to figure out exactly how to phrase this question. And um, where it comes from is my mother, when the Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter movie came out, she was kind of livid because um, we're, she's a teacher too. And we see that kids these days, they have, well, that's a very general thing. But kids basically, these they, days, oy. <laughs> um, a lot of them have a tendency to, to not really be able to, to break up the difference between reality and fiction. Um, with a lot of stuff that they see and like we've even have kids who like they read a story and then they say well it's about when we used to live on the moon and you know you're just kind of beating your head against the wall going that never happened um but uh, and so you know then you have this this really prolific figure which is a hero of hers and she doesn't want them to have this the the initial impression of who he really is be muddied by this kind of fictional thing. And so do you anticipate any kind of response like that with what you're doing? And then maybe the greater, the greater question is how do you approach such a prolific figure that, that is a lot of people's personal hero and throw him back in time to, to hunt down extinct monsters? <laughs> so let me get this straight. Instead of the cliche, which your son uses these kids today, your mom uses the, these authors today cliche. <laughs> uh, I think, or filmmakers, you know. That's right, that's right. You know, yeah. Abe Lincoln is a hero of mine. And uh, the only people who are going to say that kind of thing are people who haven't actually read the book. Because truthfully, this was one of the funnest things I ever got to write. It was co-created with Jeff Rutherford of Della Bar. And um, it was basically us trying to find something that might appeal to young boys because we're losing that generation of readers. Jeff has, Jeff has young boys of his own, and I used to be a young boy. So we kind of, And I discovered writing and my love of that and love of reading when I was a kid, and uh, I just wanted to write something fun for them. And Abraham Lincoln is a very iconic character, and I thought, you know, let's do young Abe. We don't know a whole lot about his boyhood. But given how, how big the man was and how big his mind was, surely he had an imagination. And surely he had some sense of wonder. So, you know, Davy Crockett was a hero in his day. Um, uh, Davy Crockett's about 20 years older than Abe. And so when, when he was growing up in Kentucky and Indiana, Davy Crockett was, was in his, his height of his legend. He was the famous frontiersman, backwoodsman of legend and lore, the one who, you know, killed himself a bear when he was only three. You know, that that was that was that was who he was. No, I mean and you know, if you, you can imagine yeah, a ten year old yeah. kid like Abe is gonna be looking up to somebody like that, especially because Abe Lincoln grew up poor. He grew up in a very poor I did a lot of I actually did historical research and I used actual history in the writing it as much as I could. Because sure. I wanted to use the, the history of where he was living because the first part of the story takes place in Indiana, in the community um, where Pigeon Creek, I believe it's called, where he was living. So I actually looked up names on the census of all the neighbors and incorporated some of the last names and different things that were real last names back then because I wanted it to be a little bit more grounded in history. And then, um, you know, tried to capture the feel of how they would relate to a, a Davy Crockett character and all that. So, I mean, I kind of understand where she's coming from, but at the same time, I don't yeah. think, since we don't have time travel, and nobody says time travel is really possible, that uh, if any kid who does the research at some point is going to realize that this was all a made-up story. And I, of course, I, I yeah. think it's, it's pretty tongue-in-cheek, and it, it's a lot of action and humor and fun to the point where I don't think 
the the only things that are that are real are the names of the dinosaurs and um, kind of the attributes of the dinosaurs, the plants in the in the prehistoric area, and then all that history stuff from the actual um, Indiana and, and early life of Abe Lincoln. His family names, things like that, are very much grounded in 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 fact, not fiction. So I think that that people will pretty much be able to see where it goes to the tongue in cheek and where it becomes just kind of kind of um fun you know well and gentlemen speaking of dinosaurs uh the velociraptor <laughs> has run through my office and savaged our 20 minute clock uh it swallowed is it swallowed it whole and and it was this it was a visceral scene um so uh <laughs> tragically we, we need to draw this to a close um uh, okay. Brian Thomas Schmidt, thank you so much, sir. This this has been a delight. Uh, the banter has been uh, uh, shimmering and and sparkling across the the potosphere. Thank you so much for making the time for us. We appreciate it, sir. Definitely, yes. My pleasure. <laughs> Brian, uh, uh, closing thoughts. What are you, what are you taking away from this one, man? Oh boy, all kinds of cool stuff. Um, just I think in all um, that you have to kind of follow your bliss and have fun with it. And I think that that's, that's where I was really hoping that we would go with that last question. And, and Brian went there, <laughs> um, you know, to, yeah. th- that it's a story and, and play with it and have fun. So I think it's, it was a really good, good, uh, episode this time. I agree. And I so agree. Well, we're, we're both you, Brian's. Brian I got on. your, we're both Brian's. I got your back. <laughs> that's, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> the Brian fraternity lives on. That's You're right. outnumbered, uh, Dave. Yeah, well, well <laughs> yeah, I can live with that. I can live with that. Uh, for for me, uh, uh, the I guess the epiphany I had was the notion of of a bare bones first draft. And we've heard authors talk about you know the first draft's going to suck. Make sure it sucks. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be brilliant. But it, it occurred to me that it, it also doesn't have to be complete. In 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 hearing Brian talk about his his first draft being dramatically shorter than the second and third and it never really sunk into me that you know that first draft can be not only bad but spartan and it's all about just getting that full story down in words on paper so that you can go back and add a whole layer of of flesh and muscle and bone and substance to to make the story real but sure that was that was kind of liberating for me. That's, I think that may change the way I, I approach my writing in the future. So that's well, very well, excellent. You know, Dave, yeah. if you don't have if you don't have the story done, it's harder to finish it. But if it's finished, <laughs> I mean, it, the, where the magic happens is in the rewrite anyway. Regardless, everybody sure. will tell you that. And if you if you have it done, at least you have something you can re- work with. If you don't have it done, you still got to finish it before you can do anything. So I, I guess look at it like that. You know, exactly. It's an advantage, exactly. And and that that was that was invaluable to me, and I appreciate that. Awesome. Well, I'm glad. So. And uh, uh, dear friends, uh, thank you so much, as always, for, for joining us for this 20 Minutes With. Um, uh, do stick around, uh, not immediately, of course, but in a few days, uh, we're going to have Master Schmidt back, and we are going to workshop a story so that ADHD of his is going to be put into full throttle force of, of what-ifs and speculation. It's going to be grand fun. Uh, between now and then, uh, if you had a good time with this, and I know we did, we hope you did, uh, spread the word, man. Just let, let, let folks know about the round table. We're, we're, we're never adverse to, to letting new folks discover the, the wonder that is the round table podcast. Uh, a review on iTunes is always welcome. Uh, throwing up a comment on the throwing up. That's a bad choice of words. Uh, <laughs> drafting Tossing a comment. Up. Yes. Regurgitating a comment. <laughs> 
on the on the on the post itself uh, helps keep the discussion alive and, and continuing even beyond the podcast. Drop us a line at the table at roundtablepodcast.com. And of course, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Ah, excellent, excellent stuff. So a couple of days to pass. Brian, what what should, any any ideas what they might be doing during those few days? <laughs> Go right. Oh, yes. Yeah. Go. I just yes. I just wrote down that uh, the, a part where Davy Davy Crockett shoots Dave. So I might have to play with that for a while. Oh, right? great! Well, no, there we go. I will be immortalized <laughs> in prose as the one who was killed by Davy Crockett. Awesome. Well, and then and we then, then the Brian and then the Brian's take over the earth. So I mean, I just you know. Oh, I see. I see. I'm it, digging that story. I think dude, that's fabulous. Talk talk about I mean, speculative you're fiction. You're Holy crap! Oh. oh, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. That's just the way it works, man. So 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 look for awesomeness. Look for very cool. Look for wow, and you will find it. Uh, We will see you in a couple of days. Until then, stay cool, stay frosty, be awesome, and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This episode is copyrighted 2012 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast or just send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.